0: This podcast sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ASIS has been the society for information professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information by the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information and by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Tagging has been the subject of much discussion over the last several years, but recent trends show that tagging is evolving quickly, and that today's conventional wisdom might not be accurate for long. Enform's Gene Smith explores five counterintuitive tagging trends that provide a glimpse into the next generation of user-generated classification. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast.
1: Cheers. I'm Gene Smith, um, and today I'm going to talk about tagging, and uh, specifically five trends that I think are emerging and important uh, in the field. So uh, just a little bit about myself to get started. As Leah mentioned, I'm from Edmonton, Canada, and I'm a partner in a user experience consulting firm called Enform. And you can't hear me? A little louder. Closer. Is that better? Yeah. All right. Uh, so um, my, Enform is my company, and we put together the trading cards that you guys are trading. Who's, who's been trading cards here? Everybody? Does anybody have a full set Really? Oh, that's great. You have a full set. Excellent. In a, in a bit of a, a stroke of irony, I got the controlled vocabulary card. So uh, I don't know if that means something, but um, anyway, could be a bad omen, right? Where uh, are you going to be after the session? For trading or for conversation? I'll be right here if you want to do a quick trade. <laughs> All right, so I also wrote a book on tagging, uh, a book actually called tagging, published this year by uh, New Writers in January and available at Amazon or other uh, fine booksellers. I'm um, something a little bit different uh, for me today. Normally uh, if you ever see me talk before I do um, kind of a uh, winging it Oprah inspirational um, thing and uh, <laughs> today I'm, I'm actually going to read a lot more. So I hope it doesn't get stiff and boring. but. I have some really specific things I want to say, and I really want to say them in the right way, so I'll be referring to my notes a fair bit. Uh, So just a little bit of background. Uh, When I was working on the book, I made a point of reviewing both academic research and uh, taking a really detailed look at the kind of systems people were building out in the real world. And what I found was that the conventional wisdom on tagging was really being stretched and sometimes broken by these commercial systems. So when I looked across all of those, that's, that's just how I imagined this uh, session. I'd, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if we could just keep the lights on. Um, so looking across these systems, I, I, I found five trends that I thought were important and that I wanted to talk to you about today. And I think these trends matter because they're expanding our understanding of how tagging systems work and they're showing us that tagging can be more structured than we first thought and also uh, that, that tagging systems can take advantage of their communities in some interesting ways. Um, So I know we're all kind of future files here and we all like uh, looking at trends just for the pleasure of knowing what's coming up but um, one of the things that looking at these trends does I think is it forces us to challenge and change our existing conceptual models and in the case of tagging that's important because tagging is a phenomenon that's really been moored to its early definitions Right. so this is a kind of standard conceptual model of a tagging system three parts users who are or tagging resources, uh, resources that get one or many tags, and kind of uh, users who can be associated with tags as well. So there's a way of finding resources through tags. There's a way of finding users through tags. Um, And this is a model that was developed by analyzing really the first wave of tagging systems, so Delicious and Flickr uh, primarily. And it's a model that I write about in my book, and I think it's an important model. Uh, But it's also good to think about how this model came to be. And uh, one of the reasons that we have this model is because Well, Flickr and Delicious uh, were early providers of APIs into their data. So there was a lot of people who could uh, build services on top of those platforms. But they're also the source of a lot of academic research. And that research has been uh, critical for understanding of tagging systems. And a lot of it is the source of models like these. right? But because Flickr and Delicious were so popular and so well-designed, we started to think that they represented all tagging systems. And, you know, they're really just the first wave, and they really haven't changed much since 2005, at least not as far as tagging is concerned. Last year there was this uh, uh, spate of blog posts about the stale state of tagging, and and I think many people, uh, including myself, uh, had our reference point set to uh, Delicious and Flickr, and we missed out on all of the innovation that was happening out there. And there's actually been a lot of it, and some of it's closing the gap between what we might call Uh, more traditional information structures, and the emergent structures that we saw in things like Delicious. And other innovations that I'm going to talk a little bit about take off in whole new directions that are unrelated to classification at all. So today we're going to talk about these five trends, and I think they matter because they show that tagging is evolving, and um, they show that tagging is just as interesting now as it was during that first wave. And I know that if you've been to past summits, uh, particularly 2006, there probably had a bit of tagging overkill so you might be a bit skeptical about uh, the stuff that I'm saying but uh, anyway I think you'll be interested to see what uh, uh, see what the examples are. So these are the five trends Um, a market demand for more structure in tags uh, is the first one. The second one is um, auto manual folksonomies that combine algorithmic and manual approaches to create different results Third one is systems that start to leverage communities to augment their tagging systems. The fourth one is the emergence of these integrated systems that really force us to rethink the concept of pace layering. If you don't know what pace layering is, I'll explain it later. Um, But uh, essentially, the ideas in pace layering is that that tags are seen as this fast, cheap, and out of control form of metadata. But we're seeing new systems come out that are really pushing tags to uh, more durable levels. And then finally, uh, sparking innovation by uh, architecting your tagging system in the right way. And these tags, uh, these trends aren't really discrete and standalone. In fact, they blend together uh, throughout all the examples that I show here. And uh, I think, you know, combined, they indicate that tagging is going off in whole new directions that that uh, are quite different from what we saw in the first wave systems. So in the in that first wave, people really saw the lack of structure as an advantage. And you might recall that what followed the popularity of tagging was a wave of criticism of more traditional information structures and, and actually of information architecture itself. And uh, things like taxonomies and controlled vocabularies were uh, drubbed. They were too, res- too restrictive. They were slow to adapt. They were inefficient. And um, you know, for some critics, what was worse was that they imposed a particular worldview on the people who use them. So Clay Shirky uh, you know, famously compared movie fans to cinema fans and said, you know, the movie people don't want to hang out with the cinema people. Meaning that, you know, to treat those terms... Yeah, I'll, I'll let you chuckle. Uh, meaning that to treat those terms as synonyms is to ignore you know, what we might call some important socio-semantic differences between them. And the great thing about tagging is it lets those differences flourish, right? It it doesn't just allow them, but it lets them bloom. And there's no right or wrong way to tag things. There's no best fit. And in a tagging system, the movies and cinema people never need to meet because they're using two different words with two entirely different meanings. This is actually a pretty long-standing criticism of classification systems. Uh, In her uh, essay, After the Dot Bomb, Marcia Bates uh, wrote about the problems with taxonomies. Cory Doctorow wrote an essay called Metacrap, the seventh Strawmen of the Metautopia, and, in which he wrote that um, taxonomies denuded the cognitive landscape. And you know, I think there's, there's something to that. But uh, even though you know, these early tagging systems met people's organizational needs, and even though they were pretty well aligned to the kind of techno-libertarian philosophies of a Clay Shirky or a Cory Doctorow, um, there still seems to have been this desire uh, for some structure and uh, is to say that people are okay with a little bit of denuding when it brings clarity and efficiency and accuracy, right? The things that come with uh, structure. So in the last couple of years, we've seen some really innovative tagging systems uh, emerge, uh, systems that introduce more structure, and they do it without sacrificing a lot of the features that make tagging valuable, right? The open-endedness and the social nature of it in particular. And what I really like about these examples, and they kind of permeate the whole presentation, the first two I show you are really just the the tip of the iceberg, is that these aren't tech demos or experimental systems. These are real products where tagging makes an important contribution to the value of the product overall. Um, so as I go through these first two, these are, are uh, pretty simple ones, but you're gonna see the structure theme emerging in all the other examples that I talk about. So does anyone here use Wisabi? Yeah, okay. So. Wisabi is a personal finance management site where you upload your bank data and uh, tag it and use it to understand um, where you spend your money, how you can save money, how you can achieve your personal financial goals. And um, so you get to look at all my bank data. (laughs) Clearly you need to buy my book. Uh, anyway, so, so as you go into WeSabi, you, you create bank accounts, and, and you uh, upload your transaction data, and every time you uh, tag a transaction, you have a choice between two kinds of tags, sticky tags and non-sticky tags. So WeSabi's r- real innovation is this notion of sticky tags. So every time you tag a particular um, transaction with sticky tags, those tags will stick to the merchant. Okay, so in this example I'm tagging a movie that I took my kids to and I'm gonna put two sticky tags on here, movies and entertainment that are gonna stick to this particular merchant, a movie theater every time I go there in the future and actually for every single transaction I have from them in my uh, WeSabi account. And I have a bunch of non-sticky tags. I took my kids to this movie so I'm just gonna put kids here. And what this lets me do is a couple things. First of all, it sort of Anticipates my future tagging needs, which is one. But it also um, it also uh, takes advantage of the fact that that this tr- piece that I'm, I'm tagging this transaction is actually a bunch of different pieces of metadata all stuck together. So sticky tags apply to just one piece of that, the merchant, while the one-time tags apply to the transaction overall. And then I can, just like any other system, use these tags anytime I want and get a summary of how much I uh, spent on them. So in our Going back to this conceptual model of tagging that we started with, we have a user resource and tags. What Wasabi's done is they said, you know, this resource isn't just, you know, a single monolithic thing. It's actually made up of a bunch of little parts. And when I'm tagging that resource, I can actually apply some tags to the whole document, or in this case, transaction, and some to a little piece of it, the merchant ID. This is an idea, actually, that that was uh, sort of first proposed by Tom Coates in 2005, called called it Bubble Up Folksonomies, and the idea was that when you're tagging really specific things, in this case, he's showing songs, um, you can bubble up some of those tags to higher level elements in the sort of natural order of, uh, in this case, music artists, but it applies to transactions and merchants as well. Um, So if you tag songs, you can bubble up some of those tags to the CD level, some of those tags to the artist level. So at any particular level, you can get the benefit of the tagging that happens at lower levels. So it's pretty interesting stuff and and the sort of starting point for the emergence of some more structure in tagging without really compromising the sort of simple way that tagging works. Another example I want to talk about real quick is ZigTag. ZigTag is a social bookmarking service um, actually that is uh, founded and and operates from Edmonton, uh, where I live. And uh, what Zigtag's done is introduced semantic tags. So what are semantic tags? Well, if I'm bookmarking a page, this works through a Firefox browser plugin. If I'm bookmarking a page and I type, say, IA, it brings up a list of... All of the different things that could be IA, so Indian Army, Internal Affairs, International Academy, Iraqi Airways, International Artists, there's lots of different things that can be IA. But it also lets me pick the one that I mean, Information Architecture. And that specific tag gets applied to this resources page. The other thing that, that we, uh, pardon me, ZigTag does is it uh, provides definitions for each of the tags so that you can find out. Uh, what, you know, if you're not sure if this is the Florida that you mean, and trust me, there are a lot of Floridas, um, you can, you know, look at the definition and make sure that, that your understanding of what the concept is really matches your tag. And so, they have over 2 million tags in this system, 2 million concepts defined. How did they do it? That must have taken a lot of work. Not really. They mined Wikipedia. So they got the benefit of all of this user-generated structure, all of the definitions created by Wikipedia users, brought it into their system to help make their tags more meaningful. So a couple of quick examples. We're going to see the structure theme throughout the rest of the presentation. Um, So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about communities. And uh, communities are important in in a couple of senses. You know, the accuracy and quality of tags uh, entered into a system are really a product of the community. And you know, if we look at the Delicious Tag Cloud, we can see that community's focus on things like programming, photography, Web 2.0, Google design, Flash. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we really couldn't say that, that these interests are representative of, you know, the whole breadth of human knowledge, but they do represent what a particular community is into. Uh, in some cases, though, we're seeing site creators turn to their communities to help Improve their tag collections, and the example I want to talk about is LibraryThing. Do we have any LibraryThing users in the house here? Lots. Oh, great. So you guys already know this. Um, So LibraryThing is actually like this, like a hotbed for tag innovation. They do lots of cool things, but the one I want to talk about is um, their combined tags feature. So what uh, LibraryThing lets you do is take any two tags and combine them so they have the same meaning, essentially making them synonyms, right? Just like a synonym ring. And you can do this for any arbitrary number of tags so that a whole bunch of them, like uh, WW2 here, are considered equivalent. And one of them becomes the tag that's used, so the preferred term. Basically, a user-driven controlled vocabulary. This isn't, uh, this isn't monitored by the folks at library thing. It's uh, completely done by the users. They don't seed it. Um, and uh, the thing that's incredible about it is there's a lot of uh, noise that's taken out of the system overall, just by people making these simple synonyms. You can see in World War II we have of course lots of variations on World War II, but also uh, you know different languages um, represented here in this tag set. Um, so another example here is is unread. So, This whole controlled vocabulary emerges through the activities of library thing users. And it operates in a really wiki-like fashion. So any paying member can make two tags equivalent, and any paying member can also separate two tags. So a negotiation has to happen within the community about which tags ought to be considered equivalent, and which tags ought to stay different. And um, there's even a a really great example, of two tags that seem to be identical, humor and humor, right? The American spelling versus the British spelling, which aren't combined because they are seen to hold those socio semantic differences that are meaningful. So humor and the American spelling uh, has folks like John Stewart, David Sedaris, The Onion, Douglas Adams. British spelling you know Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, P.G. Wodehouse, Bill Bryson are some of the authors that are that are represented there. There is overlap, right? But the community has decided that this difference is important, and so it remains. LibraryThing well, follows this really simple philosophy: uh, only combine tags that are virtually identical in meaning. Okay, um, but even just just that. Uh, you know, allows for a really uh, dramatic drop in noise, in useless tags, other things, and starts to build an interesting kind of structure that people can get a lot of benefit from. Uh, So anyway, that's just a little bit of communities. Um, I'm going to move on to this notion of auto-manual folksonomies. Uh, So auto-manual, I just made up that word. uh, you know, I like to make up words. I like to stick two words together, make new words. Um, and this is just a you know sort of a catch-all term for uh, a combination of approaches where there is some manually created structure, often created by a system owner or information architect, something like that, and a lot of bottom-up, user-driven st- structure built on top of that. So it's just these mixed approaches. And there's actually a number of them that are really interesting. I'm going to focus on um, a couple. Uh, I just want to talk a bit about the rationale for an auto manual approach. I mean, a lot of times tagging is almost a really good solution for you, but not quite, right? It's a little too chaotic. Uh, You know, you might like the open-ended social nature of it, but it's kind of unpredictable. And it may not do exactly what you want. Um, It may not, you know, you may need to use tags for navigation, and you may have a hard time, uh, you know, doing that just with user-contributed tags. There may be too much noise. There may be, uh, you know, you may have bad actors and other kinds of problems. So the auto-manual approach is a way of imposing some structure, but letting the rest bubble up. And I think the best example of this is Etsy. Um, Folks know Etsy.com? Has anyone sold anything on Etsy? Yeah? Oh, that's cool. I was going to put my presentation notes up for sale, actually, as I was uh, doing this example. (laughs) So Etsy's a really interesting case. They're like an eBay for handmade items. So knitters, crafters, other people who make these unique one-of-a-kind items go to Etsy and sell them. So imagine you're the Etsy's information architect, and you're trying to design navigation for Etsy when they're still kind of in development. How do you design product categories when you don't know what people are going to be submitting, and when everything uh, is potentially unique? That's a real challenge, right? And it'd be very easy to get it wrong. And the problem with getting it wrong is, um, you know, first of all, uh, that people can't navigate the site. But second, if you, if you pick the wrong categories, that might limit or, or perhaps prohibit some people from uh, selling the kinds of things that they want to sell. So Etsy's solution was uh, pretty interesting. They, they used tags, but they first defined a set of top level categories that people uh, had to pick. So. Um, Right now, I've gone into Etsy, and I'm going to sell an item, uh, and I'm sort of at the second step. I've already said, well, I'm going to sell my IA presentation notes. I want to put it in the right category. So I get a drop-down list, and I can make a choice. And I choose uh, Geekery, because uh, I think that's a good category for this. And I get a a bunch of suggestions now about related tags, okay? So just take a quick look at those. Accessory, Allen, computer, et cetera, down to video game and weird. And I can pick those, and I'm going to pick weird. Uh, I'm going to add some of my own presentation. I'm also going to pick computer and kitsch. Okay? So I've combined a set of uh, top level choices with a bunch of my own tags. Let's jump over to Etsy's navigation now. So um, you can see in their category list, they have all of those top level choices. Under Geekery, you see a list of subcategories there. Note that the subcategories are exactly like the related uh, related tags that I was suggested. So Etsy, through a combination of forced choice and influence, pushes you towards a set of categories. But you're still free to add your own. And when you go into Etsy to uh, navigate these categories, you find that the navigation is actually pretty good. You can move around quite easily. You uh, get a nice breadcrumb trail that actually goes two or three levels deep. And uh, you have a bunch of sensible choices for navigation items that aren't really um, uh, polluted with noise. Um, So this is a really great mix of a manual approach to creating navigation with a bunch of user-generated stuff. And it's really appropriate to the problem that this product faces, right? They they can't ever know what their users are going to upload. Everything's potentially unique. So it's really hard to create categories for that. Another great example is a library thing again, is something called TagMash. Mash. Um, so Tag Mash is this uh, basically like this search feature where you can combine tags to produce a list of books. But you can do more than just combine them. You can also uh, subtract or de-emphasize certain tags, kind of like doing set math. So if you've ever done set theory, you know, you can do a union, or you can do an intersection, or you can do a partial union. So tag mash works in much the same way. But the interesting thing is that as a user, you can go in and generate whatever list of books that you want. So here I've just done a couple obvious ones, 20th century and painting. Um, but maybe I, maybe I only want to look at the nonfiction. So I'm going to punch out the fiction books so I just get a list of the nonfiction books. This is all done with... with uh, uh, tags added by Library Thing users. So um, when I was talking to Tim Spaulding, the guy who runs LibraryThing, uh, he started telling me some really interesting stories about what they were doing with this. And uh, one of the things they've done is they've used this tag mash to emulate Library of Congress subject headings and also the product taxonomy uh, that bookstores like Amazon use, right? So they'll come up with a tag mash that uh, captures a particular uh, uh, Library of Congress subject heading, or a tag mash that matches a particular uh, book category, like web design. The really interesting thing about that is, once you've come up with a mash that approximates the books listed in that category, you kind of have a way of evergreening that category. Right? As long as users continue to add tags, you can see which books ought to belong in that category, and you can also look for books that are maybe miscategorized. You know, they're placed in a particular. For example, my book is not in the web design category, which is where I thought it would be. Uh, But if enough people, you know, tagged it as web design, then, uh, you know, through a sort of tag mash, I would be able to see that it belongs in web design even if it's not officially categorized there. So this is some really interesting stuff. When you're uh, mapping these mashed up tags to taxonomy branches and you have the possibility of a cheap and easy maintenance system, maybe it doesn't do 100% of the work, but it's a really good starting point. So just about this auto-manual approach in general, uh, Peter Van Dyke, who's an information architect, some of you might know, and I worked on a product called Mephidia, and that was one of the first uh, products to introduce faceted tagging. Uh, he said in an interview, um, you know, I noticed a hesitance toward hard coded semantics and manual work. People think these things won't scale. I learned to mix it up. A small amount of semantics on top of minimal structure can work wonders. I think that's what we're seeing here with people taking this auto manual approach. A little bit of semantics to get it started can really help uh, the tag system do the work that you need it to do. Okay, so um, talk a bit about pace layers. Um, one of the first ways, as IAs, that we tried to incorporate tags and folksonomies into our thinking was through the concept of pace layering. Pace layering is this idea, which uh, is developed by Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand was a uh, actually a keynote speaker at the two thousand three IA summit, and um, probably known for the book How Buildings Learn. Uh, also founder of the Global Business Network. Very smart, influential guy. And he had this idea that um, you know, society responds to these forces moving at different speeds. And you know, at, the, at the bottom is nature, which moves very slowly. And then things like culture, which moves a little bit more quickly. All the way up to commerce and fashion, which move very quickly. And, and in some cases, you know, the fashion probably chaotically. Um, and it was Peter Morville who adapted this idea to information architecture, saying that you know some kinds of IA are you know move more slowly and are, are consequently more durable, and things like facets and taxonomies and control vocabularies are, are you know these slower and more durable layers, and that you know following Brand's ideas, other aspects move more quickly, like interfaces. So um, this is uh, Peter Morville's uh, pace layering for IA. And so when tagging emerged, um, Peter wrote about tags and folksonomies as these fast-moving layers. So, um, actually, I have a long quote for him. I think it's worth reading. You know, for quite some time, I believe this concept of pace layering holds great promise. In this discussion of metadata, the potential for a unifying architecture is self-evident. Semantic web tools and standards create a powerful, enduring foundation. Taxonomies and ontologies provide a solid semantic network that connects interface to infrastructure. And the fast-moving, fashionable folksonomies sit on top Flexible, adaptable, and responsive to user feedback. Peter's a fan of alliteration, um, obviously. <laughs> I had to read that out loud to really recognize that. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to argue that things like facet classification are, are slower to adapt and, and still kind of a durable and powerful infrastructure. But what's interesting is that research suggests that um, you know, tagging has qualities of both speed and durability. And, um, in fact, one of the very first papers, uh, one of the first really good papers on tagging was uh, Scott Golder and Bernardo Huberman's Structure of Collaborative Tagging Systems, and they analyzed, I think it was 60,000 links from Delicious, and they found that after a bookmark received a certain number of tags, the proportion of tags started to stabilize and stayed stable over time. So. Um, a really good example of this is uh, Jesse James Garrett's uh, essay AJAX: A New Approach to Building Web Applications. Thanks. Um, and uh, this is the del- these are the delicious trends for this bookmark w- uh, when the essay was published. So uh, early in two thousand and five, you can see that AJAX quickly becomes the most popular tag. But after uh, well, what's about s- uh, seven or eight months, the proportions stabilize. Right. So. Over time, with probably thousands of people bookmarking this item, uh, these tags always occur in the same proportions. So, fast forward to today, ignore the left part of this graph. You can see that those proportions are still stable and still in roughly the same order that we saw in the last graph. So, this is actually pretty interesting stuff that um, you know, starts to counter some of this thinking about tags being simply this, this sort of fast moving system. There's another paper. Uh, that was published a little bit more recently. That found that um, looked at it, 500 popular, delicious bookmarks, and found that the distribution of tags was almost the same. Didn't matter what the content of the page was. It did not matter who saved it. Didn't matter what tags they used. The distribution of tags was almost always the same. And for less popular bookmarks, there was a little bit more variation, but it was still quite similar. Uh, so that's really interesting. If you think about, you know, paste layering theory, um, this is kind of a surprising result. But if you've lived on the you know, web for any length of time, you know that this is just the power law at work, right? And we see this everywhere. We see this in linking patterns in blog subscription patterns and now uh, in tags. It's about as close to a law of nature as we find online. I The other thing that's, that's happening that's uh, interesting is the emergence of systems that don't treat tags as just a fast-moving layer but uh, really an integrated part of their system. So i just going to do a really quick example here. So I'm running out of time. Uh, bazillions.com is a product review site. And they've created this really interesting system that leverages a product taxonomy, so home electronics, sports, home and garden, et cetera, some faceted navigation on the left here, and also user-generated uh, tags. Um, under this buzz guide you can see these uh, tags here best uses pros and cons and you can use these tags to filter out products I just point you to the upper uh, right of the screen here you see my first view. I have 7,000 products I'm looking at I select a couple of these tags I filter the list down to 33 okay so this is using tags as a way to filter in concert with the product taxonomy and fasted navigation If I want to go to write a review for one of these shoes, I just want to show you how this works. So they've come up with a pretty innovative system. They've faceted the tags themselves so that when you go to add tags, you have a choice of four different categories you're adding tags in. And those then are used to provide the filters. Let's go back here. I think this is a really interesting approach. And I I sort of tried to generalize it a bit, because I think it could be used with almost any kind of unstructured text, right? The great thing about a product review, it helps you evaluate a product, but it doesn't help you find a product you're interested in. So what Bazillions folks have done is turned product reviews into a kind of navigation. And they did it by first fragmenting unstructured text into tags, faceting those tags into pros, cons, best uses, et cetera, and then using tags to help filter resources in navigation. Okay, last uh, trend. Um, So sparking innovation, this is a a side of the tagging story that's not really told very well or very often. And um, it's really interesting because it doesn't have anything to do with classification. It has to do with the architecture of tagging systems and how people use them. Uh, And um, it's an interesting pattern that's emerged in a number of systems that have just designed themselves in the right way. And I'm going to focus on Flickr um, in this example. So Flickr has two important properties, right? It lets you add any text string as a tag, and then it generates an RSS feed for every single tag that's added. And this is fundamentally a very simple, if my slides will they never build the right way, this is fundamentally a a very simple database, a very simple read-write system for the web. Okay? So, you know, um, it's pretty basic, but some creative people have been able to do some interesting things with it. And the one story I want to tell you is uh, about this guy, Dan Katt. Dan Katt is a uh, developer who uh, really liked Flickr. He's a good photographer, and he thought, you know, I'd really like to be able to put my photographs on maps. So Google Maps is out at the same time. He thought, maybe I can mash up Flickr and Google Maps to show my photos uh, on a map where they were taken. So he came up with this system using tags. Really simple. It's three pieces. First, he tagged his photos as geotagged, or, or added a, what I would call a marker tag, so that Flickr would generate an RSS feed for all these photos. Then he added two machine tags. Now, machine tags are just regular tags. That are in a special format. In this case, geo colon lat equals the latitude the photo was taken at, and geolong equals the longitude the photo was taken at. And uh, with just this simple system, Dan could start to geotag his photos, parse the RSS feed, grab these machine tags, figure out where the actual Latin long values were, and put those photos onto a Google map. In the beginning, it was pretty primitive. Just for those of you who are interested, this is a quick uh, machine tags explanation. Follows the pattern namespace key equals value. Just Google for machine tags if you want to know more. In the beginning, it was pretty painful. He had to do all of this by hand. You can see that uh, in an action right here. He said geotagged, and uh, he's added the machine tags on his own. Uh, however, this was enough of a system to allow him to start to build some tools. And other developers kind of got on board, starting build- building tools as well. And eventually, the tools got pretty sophisticated. And eventually, Flickr got kind of interested in what he was doing because this is such an obvious problem for people—you know, seeing where their photos were taken—and what happened was, they liked what he was doing. They hired Dan, and Dan ended up building a much more sophisticated geotagging system for Flickr. But it got started with this really basic tagging implementation that he was able to do just because of the way Flickr architects itself. So I just want to just think about what's happening here. You know, Flickr architects their tagging system in the right way, and they get people starting to innovate on top of their platform. DanCat does a little bit of innovation. He gets a job at Flickr. Flickr users start to get some useful tools that really solve an obvious problem for them. Another thing that happened was that Flickr built machine tag search into its API so that developers got new API methods and can start to use machine tags in more interesting ways. And then eventually, Flickr built out the fully blown geotagging system that you see today that uh, doesn't involve uh, any manual tagging at all, which is great. Um, but still, you know, started uh, with that very simple system. So that's great, that's Flickr. Well, this pattern has actually happened in a bunch of other places. Conatea, which is a social bookmarking application for scientists, uh, has had people building tools on top of it. Delicious, of course, has a big ecosystem of uh, products and services built on top of its uh, feeds and tags. And IBM built an internal social bookmarking application called DogEar. That uh, saw the same kind of pattern. People starting to grab those RSS feeds and build simple mashups to do things that Dogger couldn't do. One thing Dogger couldn't do was uh, group um, one thing Dogger couldn't do was group resources by work group or by subject area. So people started to tag things with their work group and pull in the RSS feeds into their own uh workgroup portal. So, time? Time for me to wrap up? Okay. Okay. Can I have one minute? Can I, have, can I have two minutes? <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so just a, a couple of uh, final points here. Um, it, you know, one of the things that, uh, that's, the thread that's running its way through this presentation is, is not just about classification, but about the business value of tags. So in the examples that we looked at today, tags are really an essential component of the products. They're not an accessory. They're not a bolted-on feature. They're not a funnel for taxonomy terms. They're a fully realized part of the product. They make the product better. And it's in those cases where we see this innovation happening, right? We see designers and developers pushing their tagging systems in new directions. And it's not because it's cool or popular. It's because the market really demands it. Because it makes the products better. Uh, so I think this is really exciting for information architecture. And all of these new approaches are really getting back to solving some of the classic problems of IA. taking this tangle of language and making meaning from it, helping reduce the economic and cognitive costs of ambiguity, helping people find and use information. We're even getting back to some of those traditional information structures like controlled vocabularies, but just in a new way. So to me, that's really exciting. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the talk. I know I'm a bit over. So if you have questions, maybe we'll do them uh, in the hall. And thanks very much.